Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4.23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. It's a joy to welcome uh, back to Kingwood Methodist Church, uh, Reverend Jim Welch. Jim has a special spot in the heart of so many folks, having led this church through two different seasons of capital campaigns, having been here uh, for a number of fruitful years of ministry, the building of the commons. Jim went to retirement, and then we drug him out of retirement. He failed retirement. Some of you know we've made the journey to be a part of the Global Methodist Church as a denomination. Jim was elected by the Connectional Council, which was a group of people who came together and elected someone to be our leader from within the group. Uh, We elected Jim. Jim is what's known as the President Pro Tempore. It's a big word. What's different than the Global Methodist Church is that we currently only have two active bishops, which means they perform more of a teaching capacity and a liturgical capacity where they come for ordinations. But for the running of the conferences, and we're gonna be called the Trinity Conference, we've recently gone through a renaming process because when we started things out, we called it the Eastern Texas Conference because in July of last year, we thought there'd be just sort of the Eastern Texas. All the state of Arkansas, all the state of Louisiana wanted to join us. And so Jim's going to give you a bit of details about how God's been moving in that amazing process. But effective tomorrow, it's the same conference with a different name, the Trinity Conference. So whereas in our previous tribe with our United Methodist brothers and sisters, the bishop had both the guaranteed authority, administration, and can move a pastor, uh, Jim comes in as a present pro tempore that has the administrative functions in the life of the church to help it order not the ability to consecrate people or to ordain them, but to organize the life of the conference. And he has done an absolutely marvelous job organizing us. It is our delight and our joy to welcome back to Kingwood Methodist Church, my brother and friend of Christ, Reverend Jim Welch. You know, one thing has it, am I on? Is it working? Can y'all hear? Thank you, Deb. Yeah. My wife keeps me informed of what works and what doesn't work um, uh, on a regular basis. It's great to be back uh, and to preach. It's been a number of years since uh, I had the opportunity to preach in this room, uh, so it's good to be here. And it's been a long time since I saw somebody baptized in a horse trough. That was kind of wonderful. Okay. Um, although. I will tell you, Clinton did a great job. They don't teach you how to do this in seminary. I finished uh, seminary 50 years ago. A long time. (laughs) 50 years ago, and I promise you, they did not teach us uh, how to do uh, baptisms. So the first time somebody asked me to do uh, a baptism by immersion, the church I was serving at the time had purchased another church that had a baptistry uh, in the church. We redid that baptistry, so we had a a built-in place we didn't have to do it in horse troughs, Clint. We did it in a regular baptistry. 
Uh, but I did something really stupid. Now, I do a lot of stupid things in my life, but this was really stupid. Okay. When I went to baptize the woman, uh, uh, I, I uh, went through exactly kind of what Clint did today, uh, except instead of instructing them to hold their nose, you notice that Clint did that? He told them to hold their nose. I held the nose for them and we went down. Okay. And I lost half my hand because she was afraid of water and bit the snot out of me right there on the spot. Okay. So Clint, if you ever had the opportunity, be sure and make sure that they uh, hold their own nose when you put them under. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, it has been a blessing to serve over these last 16 months uh, as the president pro tem. We short pro tempore sounds kind of odd. Okay. Um, but um, the president pro tem of now the Trinity Conference, which that name goes into effect tomorrow, uh, January the 1st. Uh, we legally changed the name from Eastern Texas Conference to the Trinity Conference, including churches uh, in Texas, in Arkansas, and Louisiana. Currently, uh, we are up to around 370 churches. It grows almost daily where churches hold votes to become align themselves uh, with the Global Methodist Church. During the time of disaffiliation from the United Methodist Church, multiple churches exited the denomination, but not all those churches aligned with a new denomination. We happen to believe that because as, United, as Methodist people, we are in covenant or in connection with one another from church to church. And so my job over the next year, okay, um, we've sort of put the conference in place and um, uh, arranged it administratively, but my job over the next year is to encourage, continue to encourage churches and pastors to align themselves with the Global Methodist Church. What we anticipate is that at the end of next year, we'll have somewhere over 400 churches, uh, part of our conference. Um, did I say 400? Yeah, 400 churches and 500 pastors uh, as part of that connection. It's a wonderful work and I'm blessed to be able to do it. I retired from here uh, in 2017, it's hard to believe, Six years ago, Frank, another pastor is here in the midst uh, today, that I retired that long ago. And during that time, I've just gotten whiter, headed, fatter, okay? and I can't hear any better now than I could then. Uh, so uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I went to get, Frank, I went to get a hearing aid. Debbie told me I had to have one. Uh, so I went to get a hearing aid, uh, and uh, after I wrote the check for $7,000 for hearing aids, okay, Got it home the next day. Joe Biden announced they were going to start selling hearing aids over the counter. Okay? So I took it back uh, and got my money back, you know, uh, after all that, uh, after going through all that. Uh, but anyway, it's great to be here. And thanks to Bert for the invitation. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, to serve with Clint and with Stacy over the years. Uh, I've known Bert for a really long time um, uh, and uh, was excited when he came back as the pastor. Uh, he is a great leader, creative preacher, and a biblical scholar par excellence, and I'm grateful for what Bert brings um, to the table. So thank you, Bert. If you're still in the room somewhere, there he is back there. Uh, thanks, Bert, for uh, inviting me to, to stand back up in this place uh, and preach uh, today. I'll share the word of scripture in just a bit, but let me begin in this way. There are a number of uh, uh, adjectives that one could apply to the noun theology. Different descriptive words describing theology. The word itself means words about God. Theos, um, which means God. Uh, logos, which means word. Words about God, theology. And there are descriptive words that apply to that of different forms of theology. Words like 
Feminist theology, for instance, liberation theology, gay theology is present in our time. I mean, there's all kinds of words descriptive of theology itself. Historical theology, but one of the things that are often applied to theological understandings is natural theology. Natural theology is simply this. Natural theology is that which we gain from nature itself about the nature of the creator. Okay? We happen to believe that creation reveals to us something of who God is. Years ago, I got interested in the intersection between religion and science okay, and read pretty extensively in that and ran across a book years ago by Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist who at the time was the head of the Goddard Space Institute, uh, JPL in California. Okay. And the name of the book was God and the Astronomers. And in it, uh, what he attempted to do was to describe that intersection between religious, religion uh, and science in a way that made sense, particularly in regards to an expanding universe that began in the great fireball. You all know the more popular term, the Big Bang. Everybody heard of the Big Bang Theory, okay? That there was a, a Big Bang that started it all and then things progressed from there. Scientists through the years, particularly physicists and astronomers, have looked back on that expanding universe and attempted to talk about the relationship between religion and science, which Jastrow did in a great way in this book, God and the Astronomers. They had some curious things to say, and I, I brought the, just the last two pages of the book with me. Okay? I want to read part of this to you, if I may. Okay? This is what it has to say. This is in direct reference to the notion that we live in a universe that's constantly expanding. This is exceedingly strange, Shastro writes. Unexpected, okay? because if you talk about an expanding universe that had a beginning, what's the implication there? Okay? If it had a beginning, it had a, a beginner and an ending. Okay? Uh, but it had a beginner. Somebody started it. Okay? It began. He said, this is strange, unexpected by all but the theologians. They've always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, to which St. Augustine added, who can understand this mystery or explain it to others? It is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. We've been able to connect the appearance of man on this planet to the crossing of the threshold of life, the manufacture of the chemical ingredients of life within stars that have long since expired, the formation of those stars out of the primal mist, and the expansion and cooling of the parent cloud of gases out of the cosmic fireball. Now, we'd like to pursue this further back in time. But the barrier to progress is insurmountable. It's not a matter of another year, another decade of work, another measurement, or another theory. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, this story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And he's, he pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who's been waiting for him there for centuries. Now, I'll tell you, friends, that's an extraordinary story. 
That, that intersection between science and religion has reached that point where now as astronomers scale back in time, who awaits them but the very word that is ours in scripture in the beginning, y'all help me here, God created the heavens and earth and it's been waiting for them. But here's the issue with that. That kind of, that branch of theology that hints to us about who God is in creation doesn't really tell us that much about the character of God. That creative force from the beginning could be no more than a benign force causing what began and led to that cause and effect. It could be, as some would argue, a malignant force. Or it could be, as we Christians maintain, a loving, benevolent God that's revealed in nature itself. It just doesn't tell me enough about who God is. I want to know who God is. I want to know the character of the creator. I want to know the one and what's at the core of that creation itself. For I believe that it makes a huge difference in what we believe about ourselves as human beings and our relationship to that creator. If, for instance, you think of God as a tyrant, okay, that his nature is tyranny, okay, then you're going to respond to life in that way. Debbie and I have a friend of ours who used God as an agent of parental control. Okay. And God help us, we all need parental control from time to time. But that's how they use, that's how she used God. She would say things to her children like, you know God is watching you, you better not do this. Okay. And shake her finger accordingly. I as a preacher have done the same thing. I shook my hands at uh, prisoners over the time and said, God's watching you, you better be careful. I'm just kidding, I haven't really said that, but nonetheless... It is a temptation. But if we believe that about God, we will respond to God in exactly that way. And our understanding in faith okay, will be short-sighted and will be such that it doesn't tell us about the God who's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. What I want to say to you is this. It makes a huge difference for us in what we believe about the Lord. Now, the scripture passage I'm going to read to you today comes from 1 John. This is a testimony in John's gospel. This is from the first chapter beginning with the 14th verse. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. John speaks there. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Everybody hear that word? It is the son who is close to the father's heart who has made him known. But let me just ask a further question. What is the character of that God that Jesus has made known? 
How do we know when we look to Jesus who the Lord is? I'm going to tell you a confession. Because of who Jesus is, I have to change my notion about God is. And maybe that was at the heart of God's mission in Jesus anyway. Jesus reveals a God to me who is in search from my life. Reveals a God to me who comes after me even when I run from him. That is who God tells us he is in Jesus. Jesus tells me of God, of a God who makes room for me, room for my freedom and for my life. Jesus tells me that even though it costs his life, even though it cost him his life, we have a God who is vulnerable and who grieves and celebrates with us. Above all, what Jesus tells me is that God is a creator who loves us. Now, friends, you don't hear anything else today. Hear that, okay? What Jesus reveals to us is that the creator created all things. His nature and his name is love. <laughs> After all, who'd come up with that notion? Would you come up with that notion on your own? That the creator is a lover who not only loves but yearns to be loved himself? Those of us who've been raised as Christians may miss the shock of that message, may miss the heart of it. But in truth, love has never been a normal way of describing the character of God or what happens between human beings and their creator. For instance, not once does the Quran apply the word love to God. Not one time in the entire Quran is that word ascribed to the character of God. And in Greek philosophy, Aristotle stated it bluntly like this. It would be eccentric for anyone to claim that he loved Zeus or that Zeus actually loved a human being for that matter. In dazzling contrast to all that, our scriptures declare God is love. And cites love is the main reason Jesus comes to the earth. This is how scripture says it. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote it in this way. The bird on the branch, the lily in the meadow, the stag in the forest, the fish in the sea, and countless joyful people sing, God is love. But under all these sopranos, Kierkegaard writes, as if it were a sustained bass part, sounds the de profundus of the sacrifice over and over and over again. God is love. The heartbeat of my life is that sound that comes deep in my soul. God is love. And it will not leave me alone. At the heart of our faith is the notion that God is our God not out to get you, but God is out to love you. God is not out to get you, is out to love you. Look at Jesus' own life described in the 15th chapter of Luke, maybe the most famous chapter in all of Scripture. Luke 15 tells of a woman who searches all night until she finds a valuable coin and of a shepherd who hunts in the darkness until he finds the one sheep out of the hundred who's gone astray. 
Each of those parables ends with a scene of rejoicing and celebration, a celestial party that erupts over the news of a sinner who's welcomed home. Finally, building to a climax, an emotional climax, Jesus tells the story, an extraordinary story of a lost son, a prodigal who spurns the love of his father and squanders his inheritance in a far country. The great writer and priest Henry Nouwen tells of sitting in St. Petersburg at the Hermitage Museum for hours meditating on Rembrandt's greatest painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. He stares at the painting and Nouwen gains an insight into the parable, the mystery that Jesus himself has become something of a prodigal for our sakes. He left the house of his heavenly father, Nouwen writes, comes to a foreign country, gives away all that he has, and returns, returns as the obedient one to bring home the children of God. Now it says Jesus is the prodigal son of a prodigal self-giving father who gives away everything that the father had entrusted to him so that I could become like him and return with him to his father's house. Entire scripture from Genesis 3 to Revelation, the 20th chapter, tells the story of a God who's reckless in his love for us and who wants more than anything else to get his family by. God strikes a blow for us, friends, a blow of reconciliation. The Bible's last scene, like the parable of the lost son, ends in jubilation and joy with a family united once again around a common table. All through scripture, the gospels comment on that love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. Greater love has no one than this, than that they lay down their life for a friend. And then the most famous one of all, for God so what? Love the world that he gave his only son. There's some hard times in life. Hard times where we are broken on the wheels of living. Maybe you felt that way. Just broken by life. Or as the great current poet Christian Wynan puts it in this way. Faith steals upon me like the dew. Some days you wake and it's there, but like dew, it gets burned off in the rising sun of anxiety and ambition and distraction. I've been broken and so have you on the wheels of living. I have good friends who love me and care for me and occasionally will say the right word at the right time in the brokenness of my own life. Often I felt so burdened that I don't know how I'll go on. But friends of mine will set me aside and they will say, well, why don't you just let God love you? Friends, 
when you're broken in life, why don't you just let God love you as we know he does in Jesus? I love Reynolds Price, new novelist and poet who has a real eccentric translation of the New Testament. I commend it to you. It's really interesting. Yeah. And Price put it this way. He says this sentence. He says in the clearest voice, meaning Jesus, what we want to hear above all else. The maker of all things loves and wants me. In no other book or culture can we see a clear graph of what we need of that tall, enormous, radiant arc in our living. We are fragile creatures made by God's hand, hurled into space, and then finally caught in the arms of the one who loves us the most. Well, friends, it makes a difference what you believe about God. It makes a difference whether or not you see the Lord with open arms welcoming you to the table of forgiveness. It will determine how you live and who you are. Your pastors, Clint and Stacy and Bert, every week stand before you and invite you to embrace and to be embraced by the love of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. I issue the same invitation this morning. As you begin this new year, trust that the God who creates this magnificent world is the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ as the God of grace and love who more than anything else wants you back, wants you as part of his family. We know folks whose prodigals have returned and then fled again. I'm going to ask more than one time, how many times do we have to kill the fatted calf? Okay. And I say, God will do it for me every day. He wants me and you back again. Trust that God loves you and have it change your life. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Lord God, I give you thanks today for loving us and caring for us enough that you welcome us to your table. You extend to us a reckless love that knows no bounds, that invites us back, that will kill the fatted calf and celebrate with joy when we return to the table with you, our Lord. And so, oh Lord, we pray that we might know that love and receive it today. We pray it in Christ's name. And may we all say together, friends, amen. amen.